So I went on to Amazon Books and I looked up titles that include the word instant in them. And you can imagine uh, 20,000 titles came up, including some like this. The Selling Formula, Five Steps for Instant Sales. The Instant Millionaire, Instant Healing, The Instant Economist, Instant Enlightenment, Instant Emotional Healing, Instant Bible Lessons for Preschoolers. No, no read. Instant Office Cleaning, Instant Team Building, Instant Relief, and my favorite, Instant Happy, 10 Seconds Attitudes Makeovers. How's that? I find that I've been conditioned by this device. Uh, it's, it's ancient. It's five years old. And when I touch the screen, it now takes not one second to get to an app. It takes two seconds. And I am so frustrated. <laughs> by the way, can you all turn off your, these devices right now so that you can be fully present? No wonder so many of us are so anxious and disappointed with our lives. Life was not meant to be lived in an instant. In his book, Soul Keeping, John Ortberg quotes his mentor, Dallas Willard, in saying, hurry is the great enemy of souls in our day. Being busy is mostly a condition of our outer world. It's having many things to do. Being hurried is a problem of the soul. It's being so preoccupied with myself and what myself has to do that I am no longer able to be fully present with God and fully present with you. There's no way a soul can thrive when it's hurried. And so I'm going to take you into a story this morning and I'm going to invite you to get inside of the story. Slow down enough to get your senses engaged. What do you feel? What do you see? What do you touch? It's the story of the Emmaus Road at the end of Luke. You see, the first Easter Sunday was not a day of joy, but of sorrow for the first followers of Jesus. They were still recovering from trauma, the trauma of their Messiah being crucified. Then they heard the tomb was empty, and they were even more confused. Two of these followers were walking and talking along a road to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, when Jesus joins them incognito. I want to invite you to enter this story. It's a prayerful reading by Venita Wright. If it helps you to close your eyes, do that. Or look at the screen, the picture of the three walking the road. It goes like this. Are you ready? It's a long walk home from Jerusalem, but you're glad for the exertion. The physical work of walking might ease just slightly the harder work that's going on inside you today. It's the work of grief. You lost a friend just a few days ago. Not only a friend, but your leader, your beloved teacher. And he didn't simply die. He was executed in the most torturous, shameful way. You've seen a lot in your lifetime, but the memories of Jesus' ordeal are forever branded into your memory. You close your eyes and you see blood. 
You go to see, sleep but dream about someone suspended, gasping for air. At least your friend is with you. Both of you followed the teacher with equal conviction and enthusiasm. So you bear your grief together now. As you walk and walk through the long rainy afternoon, you encourage better memories of all that the teacher said, of the people you know whom Jesus healed. You can't seem to stop talking, although several times one or both of you must stop talking because you must also cry for a while. The stranger joins you while you're still several miles from home. Within moments, it's clear that this person has no idea what's been going on in Jerusalem. With great heaviness and some annoyance, you fill in the barest details for him. All you have to do is say crucifixion and anyone in Roman territories knows exactly what you're talking about. But the stranger engages the conversation with great energy. He must be some kind of teacher because he launches into an exclamation of how Jesus' fate is actually a good thing and the proper fulfillment of what was long predicted. This is fascinating. You and your friend are all ears, but before you know it, you've arrived at your home and it's getting dark. You invite the stranger to have supper with you and spend the night rather than risk injury or other misfortune while on the road at night alone. Also, you want to hear more of what he has to say. He graciously accepts your offer. The first thing you do upon entering the house is prepare the evening meal. The three of you sit down to eat. Then the stranger takes bread and blesses it. You sense the warmth of God's presence in the room. Where have you heard this blessing before? The stranger hands each of you a piece of the bread. You take it and memory washes over you of a hillside with thousands of hungry people, of a few loaves and fishes being transformed in an instant to miraculous abundance. Suddenly it is clear who this man is eating at your table. You look into his face. What do you see? What's his expression? What do you feel? What do you know in the truth of your heart? Your friend has barely gotten the words out, why it's the Lord, when the stranger vanishes. You and your friend stare at one another in a holy hush. You finally say, weren't our hearts on fire when he explained the scriptures to us? Didn't we know something even then? We just couldn't identify it? You finish your meal. What a healing pleasure to eat bread blessed by those hands. But then you look at each other and know what you must do. You head back to Jerusalem. You have to tell Jesus' other followers who are still there in the city. What is your conversation at, like now on the road back to Jerusalem? How has your perspective changed now that you've met the resurrected Jesus? Would you pray with me? We sang that he spoke a hundred billion galaxies into existence. That means you can speak to us right now with all the clutter in our souls. I pray that you would capture our attention, that you would set us free from distraction and you would draw us into that conversation that you're having with us on our road. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So everyone at one time or another is on a road to Emmaus. You may be there today. You may know others who are there. My focus today is how does the risen Jesus continue to make himself known on our road to Emmaus? And how is he inviting us to walk with others who are on their road? That's our focus. Before we unpack this amazing conversation, let's zoom out a moment. The story begins on a road and it climaxes at a meal. The heart of the Gospel of Luke from chapter 9 to 19 is a travel narrative. The journey begins in Luke 9 with these words. While everyone was marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, listen to me and remember what I say. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. But they didn't know what he meant. Its significance was hidden from them. So they couldn't understand it. And they were afraid to ask. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set for Jerusalem. That journey down from Galilee, along the Jordan, and then up to Jerusalem. Along the road, he tells travel stories. There's a story of the Good Samaritan. Remember, he found a man wounded on the side of a road out of Jerusalem. The story of the waiting father who runs along the road to his son who's on a road home. In Luke 19, Zacchaeus gets his first glimpse of Jesus because he was short. He had to climb a tree along a road to Jericho. In Acts chapter 8, Philip is sent to an Ethiopian official who's on the road home from Jerusalem down through Gaza. And in Acts 9, many of us know the risen Jesus confronted Saul on the road to persecute Christians in Damascus. God likes the work on the road. <laughs> He's always going on the road with us. And I, I believe that no matter where you're at in your road, your road to recovery, your road of life, we've got teens here, we've got empty nesters here, we've got senior seasoned saints here, we've got married, we've got single. Isn't it beautiful that Jesus meets us all on our road of life? I believe he wants to meet you. And so let's, let's just dive into this text now. Now the same time, this is Luke 24, 13, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came along and walked beside them, but they were kept from recognizing him. The risen Lord goes incognito. Jesus, undercover. And walks with these perplexed, grieving, traumatized friends. I wonder why he keeps his identity hidden. You thought about that. Why does he keep his identity hidden for the, pretty much 90% of the conversation? Why does he keep his identity hidden in our lives sometimes? In the lives of those we love? Could it be that he in love waits for us to be ready? I believe God's revelation to us is kind of like a time-release capsule. You know how you take a pill and it just kind of at the right time inside of you? I believe 
God's revelation is like a time-release capsule. It releases when we need it most, when we're ready. And I think that's grace. God gives us time. Our journey towards faith and discipleship takes time. Some of us need a longer on-ramp. Last week I talked about the on-ramp. Uh, I figured out the street it was. It's Osos Road in San Luis Obispo. When you're going from that road onto 101 South, you literally have 50 feet, I think, to get on up to 65. Or you will be off on the next, I think it's Marsh Street. And I tell you, I've decided to just floor it at that curve. And uh, the journey of faith uh, is not like that. I think we more need a long, gradual on-ramp, at least I do. I've been reading about, I love biographies of conversion. C.S. Lewis, his journey onto the road of faith was a long, winding road. It took years. Just to come from atheism to believing in a God, not necessarily a Christian God, was a major conversion for him. Then coming from a belief in a God to the God and our Lord Jesus Christ was another amazing conversion that came actually on a road after he was walking along in Oxford by Magdalen College along Addison's Walk with Tolkien till four in the morning. And Tolkien captivated him with a conversation, could there be a truth behind, behind all these myths of a dying God, a rising God? And Lewis, the next week, said yes to Jesus on a road. So God gives us time. It's one of the reasons why I love uh, helping on Alpha. You get this front row seat to what God is doing in people's lives at different stages. One of our guests recently rediscovered Jesus after being 40 years away from church. She shared her joy at our Christmas dinner this way. He had been walking with me all along, but I did not recognize him until now. And we got to witness over those 10 weeks of Alpha how she came home. What a gift is that? Let's go to the next uh, verse, 17. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still. I can just see them frozen. Their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, would you guys all join me with this? Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem? who does not know the things that have happened in these days? In other words, translated, are you so clueless? And then I love this. I wish I could have the uh, nonverbal, I, like we only have the words, but I wish we could have the, the, like when he says what things, was there a smile on his face? Like, tell me more. Jesus raised questions and listens. With downcast hearts, they tell their story. The heart of a good conversation is a good question and good listening and the curiosity that says, tell me more. Jesus takes time to listen even when he already knows their story better than they know it themselves. The words conversation and conversion have just two letters different from one another. They both come from the same Middle English root, which means living among, familiarity, intimacy. Why is conversation and conversion so closely linked lexically? 
because real change never comes from talking at one another. It comes by talking with one another. I believe the best evangelists are the best listeners. How often do we as parents talk at our kids rather than talking with them? How many people outside the church would say we Christians are good listeners? Seriously. So in answer to Jesus's question, what things have happened, they give their story about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem and rescue Israel. Can you hear the disillusionment, the disappointment? And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find the body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. Listen to the women is the lesson there. But they <laughs> did not see Jesus. And he said to them, and again, I, I wish I could see the facial, nonverbal, oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see what Jesus is now doing? He's gently challenging their assumptions. They believed that God would rescue Israel from suffering, not that he would rescue Israel through suffering. It's a big difference. Jesus did not fit their expectations, and as a result, they were disillusioned. This incognito Jesus invites them, though, into a larger story. Imagine being in on that conversation as Jesus takes them through all the books of Moses and through all the prophets and connects all the dots to himself. Wouldn't you love to have been a part of that? You see, we all look at life through a particular set of lenses and this, this, these lenses that we have are unconscious assumptions and expectations that are shaped by our culture, our family background, our education, our race, our geography, our religious experience. They shape how we view the world, and we're unconscious of them. And they often keep us from recognizing Jesus. What I'm trying to say, friends, is every single one of us is biased, and we don't know it. I didn't hear any amens on that one. <laughs> See, Jesus invites us into a larger story. It's only through that larger story of Scripture that we can confront our biases. It's only through the larger story that we can make sense of our own story, the world's story, Jesus' story, and find our place in God's story. It's essential that we learn to read the Scriptures as a single grand narrative, as one united story, not just in bits and pieces. As we see God's, the large, grand story of God, it helps us make sense of our story. And there's just so many amazing tools available to help us in this. And 
I want to highly recommend the Bible Project, which is an, is an amazing video-based tool. It's free online for giving you a sense of the bigger story of Scripture. Also an app called the BibleInOneYear.org, which helps me so much. I'm going through the New Testament each day, and it has an audio version. I'm more audio-oriented. And just getting that, the full story, rather than picking and choosing, letting the story shape my story. Are you with me there? It's powerful when you find a reading partner and, and journey through Scripture that way. So as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued as if he was going further. I love this. Just when you think Jesus is going to press for a decision, he counterintuitively backs off and waits for them to initiate the next step. He takes off the pressure. I find so often people in our culture expect us as Christians to be trying to sell them something. And when we back off from the pressure, oftentimes it counterintuitively results in more openness and trust. Are you with me there? So they urge him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So they, so they went in to stay with him. When he was at the table with him, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they, began, they recognized him, and he dis disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures? Jesus accepts the invitation, he enters their space, he shares their meal, he breaks bread with them, and their eyes are open. They recognize him, and they say, this is Jesus. They immediately begin to connect the unconnected dots of their spiritual journey. You know, what is it about meals and Jesus? I mean, throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus at meals. His first miracle was at a wedding reception. We see him eating with both insiders, Pharisees, scribes, and also with outsiders, tax collectors, and sinners. He speaks the kingdom of God. He describes it like being a banquet. The Holy Spirit descended on the disciples at the feast of Pentecost, at a meal. And the early church joyfully uh, enjoyed meals daily together. One of my professors at Regent College suggests we simplify all that we do in church around just three simple meals. One would be the meal Jesus hosts for us. That would be the Lord's Supper. Number two would be the meal we host for one another and for the stranger. It'd be like my wife's world-famous waffle brunch. We hope in five years to have all of you over to our place <laughs> so you can experience those amazing waffles. It's the and the thirdly is the meal that our neighbors host for us, our particularly our pagan non-Christian neighbors, because Jesus is always getting invited to share a meal with outsiders, and he shows up. And some of his amazing, most kingdom works are at those unexpected places, like my friend's happy hour every Friday on Ash Street. It's amazing the conversations that happen there. You see the up, in and out, up with Jesus, his, his table in with our meal, and out sharing the table with our neighbors. There's a beautiful rhythm. I challenge you to slow down 
and share at one simple meal during the month with someone, include someone who is not in your church friends, someone on the outside. It's amazing how you can, when you slow down around food, you can learn each other's stories. There's something powerful about meals. You cannot email a, a meal. You can't text a meal. You have to be bodily present. Meals are face-to-face, person-to-person. I think in our screen time culture, we believe, I believe there's a groundswell hunger for real face time, for reclaiming the table as a place of community. Amen? Eyes are open at the table. So what did they do? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So they come back to Jerusalem with a new story, a fuller story. It's true. They had went with bits and pieces about Jesus, like many in our world have bits and pieces about Jesus. They came home knowing him. True conversion results in an urgency to tell others. So let me ask you this, friends, how will people in our community, right here in the five cities, come to know Jesus? The answer, slowly. I think in the Emmaus Road story, I believe Jesus has given us a model, a pattern for our posture in a post-Christian culture. Real, lasting conversion is almost always a process rather than an event. You can't microwave it. It's more like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. At Christmas, my family always breaks out those thousand-piece puzzles, and they sit on the table for weeks and weeks after Christmas. And slowly we work on the sides always and then we get the picture starts to get clearer. And isn't that how God reveals himself to us? The picture comes to view slowly. Jesus is still alive and he's still meeting people on the road to Emmaus. Are we willing to join him? That's my question this morning. Are we willing to take the time it takes to walk with people on their road, to share meals with them, to learn their story, to hear their doubts and disappointments, to share God's story, and watch Jesus set their hearts afire for him? I want to summarize this whole conversation with an acronym. And the acronym, it's called Slow Evangelism. And the acronym is BLESS. Simply, there's five ingredients to our new posture, I think, in a post-Christian culture. And it's really an ancient posture. It's the Jesus posture. B stands for be with people. You know how love is spelled? Four letters. T-I-M-E. Actually, being with people, and that's where the meals and the walking with come. It takes time. God came, uh, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. He didn't just remain aloof. In the same way, He sends us to dwell among people. Be with them. Take time to learn their story. Don't make assumptions. We so often make assumptions about people. Everybody has a story. Earn the right to be heard. E stands for that. Live the life that is a compelling story. 
example. Live a life that shows that the gospel is actually working in your life. And then you will have the opportunity to share your story. And as you share your story, it's, it's going to be really hard for you not to share God's story because your story has been shaped by God's story. It was, it was amazing for me uh, in the Bay Area, right before I moved down here, God just gave me three Muslim, young Muslims friends from uh, Iran who had just come over to work in the tech sector in the Bay Area. And it was just during that time of the Muslim ban and they were feeling completely marginalized. They didn't approve of their revolutionary government back in Iran and they felt unwelcome here. And so we just started having meals together and hanging out. I'd take them to American food, they'd take me to Persian food. I like the Persian food better. <laughs> we did a lot of Persian food. And uh, as we ate together, I learned their story, fascinating story as Persians coming out of Iran. And during that time, they asked me to share my story. And uh, usually when people find out I'm a pastor in the United States, Americans, just the conversation dies. <laughs> but they were actually curious, fascinated by it. So I got to share my story in the process. I got to share God's story and invite them to explore. Would you like to look at the Jesus who welcomes the outsider? There's a, there's a book in the Bible where Jesus is always welcoming the outsider. It's the Gospel of Luke. And so we began to meet for more Persian food, and then we'd open up a story from Luke each week. And as they got to know the Jesus of the Gospel of Luke, they said, we, we, we've never seen this before. I thought that by the time we got to chapter 24, I could ask the question, what do you think? But cha by chapter 8, they said, how can we be baptized? We want to know him. If we just let the Gospels show Jesus to this world and not varnish him over with our churchianity, I think he would be much more compelling. Do you agree? So invite them into God's story by just saying, have you ever explored the Jesus of the Gospels? He's pretty controversial. Guess who he has the most problem with? Religious people. And they were just going, wow. It, just, it was so cool. It was so cool. So if you're on a road to Emmaus today, or if you know someone who's on a road to Emmaus, I invite you to meet the risen Jesus. Recognize he walks with you, he walks with them. He walks with you before you recognize him, and he's walking with them before they recognize him. It's a beautiful thing. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord Jesus that you have risen. We're not sitting here talking about our dead founder. You're alive, you're in the room, and you're on the road of every one of our lives. Thank you that you walk with us even when we're not aware of it, even when we're slow of heart and full of questions. Thank you that you want to hear our stories even when you already know them, and that you bring others along that walk with us and break bread together. We ask that you would draw us into your larger story, heal us of our biases, draw us into a story that helps us recognize you for who you really are and what it means to follow you. In Jesus' name, everyone said,